The Lord be with you. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we were reminded again recently on the news that lone gunmen massacre people with shocking regularity. Post offices, schools, shopping centers acquire newly familiar names. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Tucson. And there's an odd matter-of-factness about all of these events. We respond to these mass shootings with a here-we-go-again feeling. Sensational events briefly make headlines. Media invade for days of in-depth coverage. We learn intimate details about victims. Perpetrators are scrutinized. Weapons are discussed. Soul-searching occurs about how this might have been avoided. Memorial services are observed. And then attention moves away, awaiting the next tragic shooting. Much of the script never changes at all. But a few years ago, in the fall of 2006, a group of Christian victims rewrote predictable scenarios. Amish, the Amish are often sentimentalized, exploited for tourism, or mocked by popular culture. And the Amish generally prefer to avoid attention. They prefer to ignore attention. So imagine their discomfort, discomfort when within 24 hours of a tragic shooting at a little Amish school in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, within 24 hours, their entire community was taken over by hordes of reporters, television vehicles, and media helicopters. Yet those stubborn, plainly dressed folks were not overwhelmed by this attention. They did not follow previous mass shooting scripts. Very soon, within hours of the tragic shooting, they let it be known that they forgave the perpetrator of this terrible act. And then they themselves acted. They visited, within 24 hours, the parents of the perpetrator. They visited the wife and the children of the perpetrator. They attended his funeral. And when donations poured in from around the world to the Amish to help them with devastating medical expenses, the Amish shared those donations with the perpetrator's widow and children. And even now, the perpetrator's wife travels with an Amish woman to minister in locations where other people are victims of terrible shootings and violence. Redemption occurs. When people commented on how strange this Amish behavior was, was and how hard it was to understand, they were very calm and matter-of-fact about it. They said they were just living by Jesus' standards. They were just living out what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. They were just living according to the Sermon on the Mount, according to the Lord's Prayer. And yet their Christian actions, in all their strangeness, 
unpredictability and inexplicability suddenly became the focus of media attention on this mass shooting. The Amish fulfilled the Beatitudes. They showed poverty in spirit in not claiming superiority or victimhood. They showed mourning in their sadness for those who were killed and for those who were wounded, indeed for the one who committed the crime and for his relatives. They showed meekness in not finding anything remarkable in their stance and hungering and thirsting for righteousness in their recognition that great harm and terrible evil had been committed. Mercy in how they treated the perpetrator's parents, spouse, and children. Purity of heart in not speculating about their enemy. Peacemaking in their reconciliation initiatives to the murderer's family. And being afflicted and persecuted in the deaths and injuries to be sure, but also in the unwelcome attention from the media. The passage that we have before us today is known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Beatitude simply means blessing. So we have a passage of blessings. And it's a beloved and lovely passage, one that is very familiar to us. Its poetry, its eloquence, its rhythm, its profundity, its beauty, and its consolation, I think, function in the New Testament much as Psalm 23, beloved Psalm 23, functions in the Old Testament. Both are often memorized, recited, set to music. And but, but while both console, they also both challenge and even disturb us at times. Psalm 23 speaks of evil and enemies and the valley of the shadow of death. And the Beatitudes, of course, allude to poverty, mourning, evil, and persecution. The Beatitudes, according to one author, are a poetic and exquisitely paradoxical meditation on how to live a life of faith in a world of doubt. In lilting beauty and fluid verse, the Beatitudes sanctify those qualities in us that are the very antithesis of success as we understand it in the West. Now in the Roman culture at that time, at the time of Jesus' Beatitudes, the Romans also had Beatitudes. They also had blessing sayings about the blessed life and the good life. But the Romans understood that the good life had to do with wealth and prosperity and success. Not so different from how we understand it today. Jesus' Beatitudes were countercultural back then, and they are countercultural right now. Jesus' Beatitudes open our imagination about what the good life can be, what the good life and the blessed life can be. This passage is significant for many, many reasons, not only because it is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, this is Jesus' first sermon in the book of Matthew. It's his first teaching. And, uh, and Matthew writes, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and then he began to speak and taught them. Matthew is signaling that Jesus is, in fact, the new Moses, delivering God's instruction from the mountain. And the Beatitudes, while inspirationally familiar, are spectacularly difficult to live out. Because here we hear the priorities, the intrinsic values of the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the purposes of God. 
The Beatitudes form and comprise the founding and foundational document for Christians. Countries have their constitutions. The US has its Declaration of Independence. Canada has its scintillating British North America Act of 1867. But the kingdom of God, the reign of God, has the Sermon on the Mount with its Beatitudes. And this passage densely concentrates God's calling upon us and upon our lives. It summarizes how we are to live. As one author noted, it's not much of an exaggeration to say that Christian ethics consists merely of a series of footnotes to the Sermon on the Mount. Now we all know that words that get repeated often can become cliches, they can become, rote, they can become mere empty rituals. And this is a danger for any kinds of words or phrases or sayings or verses that we repeat often in the scriptures. They become cliches that we cite but no longer ponder, no longer take in, no longer absorb. We need to remember that Jesus is telling us here about the blessed life, the good life in its richest sense. And Jesus' measurements are different than what we usually expect in our culture. Too often, the good life is measured materially by the value of cars, the size of houses, the quality of televisions or other technology, the security of pensions. Too often, the good life is measured by speed, wealth, size, and accumulation. But the kingdom of heaven confounds all those expectations, all those human expectations. The Beatitudes call for a reversal, a turning around, a turning upside down. The categories of the people that the Beatitudes exalt are the opposite of what human society typically identifies as successful or blessed. The Beatitudes offer eight condensed aspects of faithful discipleship. And each of these beatitudes has to do with a letting go, a dying to self. This is about living in, a, living in a way, as one contemporary theologian has it, that makes no sense at all if God was not fully revealed in the life, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This only makes sense in the light of what God has done in and through Jesus. It aligns with the kind of teaching that we have in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, about how the cross seems foolishness to the world, to many, to the world. But we as believers know that the cross is the power of God. Paul writes, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. As if reflecting on the Beatitudes themselves, Paul writes, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God works counterintuitively in our world. It's hard to overstate how perplexingly peculiar these claims are. They are heard, we've heard them so often, they seem familiar to us. But I am happy to say that Canadian Leonard Cohen reminds us of the weirdness of such claims when he sings the staggering account of the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't pretend to understand at all. He's not the only one. And in fact, 
if it's true that these sayings are about the life of faith in a world of doubt, we need to pay attention to their apologetic import. As you know, new atheists get a lot of press in our culture these days. In the last few years, so-called new atheists have penned authoritative-sounding titles, The End of Faith, God is Not Great, The God Delusion. Many of these books are bestsellers, suggesting that they are meeting a need, some kind of unmet need within our culture. And I have to tell you, I'm not too bothered by the new atheists. They usually argue against versions of Christianity that I do not recognize. Their critiques and their complaints often miss the mark. Contrary to what they claim, I know and admire many people of faith that are intelligent, well-read, knowledgeable about science, and respectful of diverse viewpoints. But their most telling criticism, their only criticism, is one that I hear and that lodges sharply. Their most telling criticism is when they point to so many Christians who do not, in fact, live according to the spirit of the Beatitudes. And unfortunately, they have a host of examples to point to. I believe that the greatest deterrence to winning people to faith is the scandalous fact that the followers of Jesus do not, in fact, emulate the Prince of Peace. Miroslav Volf recently cited a study that suggested in 2,000 years, Christians have been responsible for over 180 million killings. And in case you're curious, Muslims have only racked up 32 million so far. So we're beating them six to one. Why should anyone respect claims about Christ loving us when we were enemies? Why should anyone respect our claims of the power of forgiveness and resurrection if we don't live out those convictions ourselves? A few years ago, I walked a pilgrimage in Spain. I walked for 500, 500 not 500 years, although it felt like it, 500 miles along a traditional Christian pilgrimage route, and the strange thing was that most of the people who walked on that route were, did not call themselves Christians, and they told me so. And when they found out that I was a Christian, they wanted to know about what that meant, what my beliefs were, how I understood my faith, and I was happy to talk about these things with them. And more often than not, I talked about the Sermon on the Mount, I talked about the Beatitudes, and I talked about following the Prince of Peace. And I kid you not, when I talked about the Prince of Peace, most people responded with disbelief, with incomprehension. They didn't get it. And why didn't they get it? They told me why they didn't get it. The reason was that since September 11th, they have heard so much loud and angry talk from Christians in North America, spouting hateful words and sentiments that they did not, in fact, believe that Christians advocated reconciliation. That anger, that, that rage, that sense of vengeance has become the face for much of the world of Christianity. And to that, I can only say, may God have mercy on us. We as Christians don't need to ratchet up arguments against new atheists. Rather, the challenge for us, the best apologetics of all, is to live like Jesus to live as if we believe that Jesus really is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Because if Jesus is Lord of Lords, then the ultimate realism is to obey Jesus, is to follow Jesus, is to be like Jesus, to emulate Jesus. That is the evangelism that we need. Because the Beatitudes are, first of all, 
a self-portrait of Jesus Christ himself. It's a challenging portrait. It's not one that we can live out on our own, not one that we can accomplish by ourselves. We need the community of faith to join us in solidarity and alliance for that to happen. Nevertheless, the Beatitudes are meant to be lived out. They are meant to be lived. And I am happy to say that there are many Christians that we can point to who live in the spirit of the Beatitudes, who reach out to those who are different, even hostile. They reach out to those from whom they may be alienated. Another such story comes from late 20th century. A man named Christian de Cherge grew up in Algeria, where his father was a military officer protecting French colonial interests. As a child, de Cherge was not religious, he was not Christian, but he was quite impressed by the religious devotion of Muslims in Algeria, and he noticed that. Years later, he returned to Algeria as a soldier himself to protect French colonial interests. One day during a demonstration, he was almost killed, except for the intervention of a Muslim police officer, an Algerian police officer who saved de Cherge's life. The very next day, that Muslim police officer was assassinated because he had saved the life of a Frenchman. And it was that action that converted de Cherge to become a Christian. When he saw the loving sacrifice of another human being, he understood the gospel, and he became a Christian. He returned to France, he attended seminary, he became ordained as a priest, and he, then he joined the order of Trappist monks. From there, he went back to Algeria, to a small Trappist monastery in Algeria. Eventually, he became the prior or the leader of that monastery. The Trappists decided that they wanted to practice a prayerful witness of reconciliation among Muslim neighbors. And the Muslims were impressed with these Trappists because they could see that the Trappists were people of prayer. One of the criticisms that Muslims have of Christians is that we don't pray. But they could see that these Christians prayed, and they were impressed. Now what you need to know is that at this time, in the 1990s, was a time of terrible turbulence and violence in Algeria. Statistics suggest that as many as 60,000 to 100,000 people were killed in the turmoil. In 1993, as the violence increased, Islam, there was an Islamic rebel ultimatum that demanded that all the foreigners leave Algeria immediately. The Trappists wrestled hard with what to do, what was their obligation to God. They knew the risk of what it meant to remain in that hostile country, but they opted to dwell close to their suffering neighbors. They insisted on maintaining a prayerful witness of love among the Muslims. Repeatedly, their friends urged them to get out, to be realistic, to go away, to depart, as the violence against expatriates grew. But the brothers stayed, declining military protection. And in 1996, militants raided the monastery and kidnapped the brothers. They were not heard again from for two months when finally their heads were found. This event shocked Algerians, and some see it as the turning point in Algerian politics, one that helped lead eventually to the diminishment of violence. De Cherge wrote and left behind a letter which was only to be opened in the event of his violent death. If the day comes, he wrote, that I am a victim of terrorism engulfing Algeria, 
I would like my community, my church, and my family to remember that I have dedicated my life to God. He asked that what happens not be used to caricature Islam or to perpetuate violence. He recalled that it was a Muslim who won him to Christ. And his letter closed with a prayer even for his murderer. To you, my friend of the last moment, I wish this thank you, this adieu. God's image is in you also. May we meet in heaven if it pleases God. So sisters and brothers, I have a fantasy. My fantasy is that someday I return to Spain and I return to that pilgrimage route and I find an easier way to walk 500 miles. But more importantly, that I have the opportunity to relive earlier conversations. And but this time, when I discuss Jesus, the Prince of Peace, faces will light up and people will say, ah, you mean like the Amish of Nickel Mines. You mean like the Trappists of Tiberim. May it be so, because that would bring glory to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.